My brain's only at half speed this morning. All right. So. We're going to see if the Sorry. if the listeners Sorry, can pick listeners. up on difference in voice <laughs> and difference in tone and intensity that we're, uh, we're recording at a different time. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steph Vicari. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. Hey, Chris, how are you today? I'm doing well. Uh, we're recording in the morning, which is different than normal. And also, it's snowing outside. So just a lot of things are confusing me. My brain is like, wait, this isn't how Bike Shed works. There isn't snow or mornings for Bike Shed, but apparently here we are. Bike Shed only happens in sunny afternoons. That's it. Exactly. Bike Shed brings the sunny afternoons, is my experience. But yeah, otherwise, things are good. Working on some websites and building some things. Uh, actually, I've been playing around a bunch with things related to webhooks, which are a wonderful technology. And it's interesting, a lot of the different platforms that I'm looking at right now, everybody just supports webhooks. It's just obviously the way that we do this sort of thing now. And I appreciate that because it is a great way to keep things in sync. But there's one tool that I've found that's been recommended by a bunch of the different platforms that I'm poking at uh, called webhook.site. Have you seen this? Mm-mm. I'm not familiar with that. So webhook.site is a site that you can use to test webhooks. So webhooks, you need some accessible URL on the internet that the webhook can post to. So like if you're integrating with Stripe, you need to say, hey, Stripe, whenever there's something that updates on your side, send a webhook back to my application. But if you're still early in the development of that application, you just want to get a sense of like, what's the data look like? When do these webhooks fire, et cetera, et cetera? You don't necessarily have your code in production yet. And so webhook.site, the minute you go there, if you just go to the root of it, they will redirect you to a URL that has a UUID in the URL. So that's your special webhook that you like webhook target. And then you can point, say, Stripe or any other service that's providing a webhook at that. And it will capture any incoming webhooks and just display all the data. So it'll say, we got a post. Here was the body. Here were the headers. You know, here's all of these different pieces of data. And so often there's complexity around signatures in webhooks. So they'll say, like, here's the body of it, but here's how you know it actually came from us. There'll be a header that is a checksum signature with your, you know, private key, et cetera, et cetera. And figuring out all those details is somewhat difficult. So it's really nice to have this tool that allows you to just like spin it up and try it out. Yeah, that's super cool. I have not used that before, but it sounds super handy. I was just thinking one of the bits I love about having this podcast is then when you share some really great tips like that, I'm already mentally cataloging to be like, okay, well, next time I'm working with webhooks like this, I'll be like, I need to go back to that episode and remember that resource that Chris mentioned. So yeah, that sounds great. Here's hoping we put it in the show notes. I imagine Please we will. Do. Seems like the sort of <laughs> we thing will. we'll do. Yeah, we're pretty good at that. But it's interesting, as I'm poking around with this and thinking about webhooks more, there's sort of a fundamental question that I have that I don't have a clear answer to, but it's around, say you have your application and then you have Stripe. And Stripe has the canonical, in theory, the canonical source of truth around what are all the different products that you're selling or the different plans? What are the different tiers that you have within them? Who are the subscribers? What is the state of their subscription? Are they active? Have they canceled? Are they in a trial? And via webhooks, in theory, you can sort of stay in sync. But to me, there's a question of how much do you actually want to try and fully duplicate the data that canonically lives in Stripe? Or do you just want to, say, try to keep up with the subscription state and then let everything else live on Stripe? And Stripe even has the sort of white-labeled billing thing that you can do. So you can say, like, oh, if you want to manage your account, 
you end up redirecting someone into Stripe. As I, I think this may actually be a, a more recent addition, but Stripe has the customer portal, which is a way that you can, rather than needing to own and manage all of the things around updating or canceling a plan or looking at billing history or downloading or changing payment information, you can instead redirect your users into the customer portal. I think there's some, um, again, like sort of signature in the URL, some way that you indicate to Stripe which user this is in a trusted way. And then from there, Stripe handles everything else. And you can white label it with sort of colors and branding and typography, but it means that you don't need to duplicate all of that information in your app. At the same time, it's kind of nice to know. So like, where, where do you draw that line is sort of my question. I don't know if it's just morning mood stuff, but I'm going to curse a little bit. I'm going to say that's awesome. <laughs> I love it. Like that is so nice to integrate with Stripe, those Stripe developers. I don't know anybody at Stripe, but just shout out to y'all. Y'all are doing the good work. Thank you. Because to be able to not have to duplicate those features and that logic within your system. So then you can say, hey, here's the source of truth. And then when the user wants to see their account, we can just send them to that source of truth and then they can alter their payments or anything that they have stored in Stripe. So yeah, I love it. Morning stuff is fire emoji. It seems to be true. (laughs) (laughs) At least more excited about not doing certain feature work. Oh yeah, maybe that's it. In the morning, you're like, I'm really excited about not having to do something. That sounds awesome because it's the morning and I don't want to. (laughs) Maybe that's it. You mentioned a moment ago about, I think you were hinting at whether that's a good thing or bad thing, though, in terms of where do we have that source of truth? Who gets to manage that source of truth? Could you expand on that a bit further? Sure. So often we end up integrating with external services. So like recent examples that I've poked around with Stripe definitely being one of them. Other external payment sources, so like Apple and Google subscriptions, if you have a mobile app. Typeform is another example, which allows us to collect information and build sort of uh, surveys and things like that. But then we get this qualitative data that we want to pull potentially into analytics or information about the user. And so now the question that I have is, do you keep that data in the system of records? So in Stripe or in you know Apple payments or things like that? Or do you try to pull all of that information together into the one database so that you can answer more questions about analytics, user journeys, et cetera. And then the question of like getting it just right, actually staying 100% in sync is really hard. And over time, there's almost certainly going to be drift. And so if you really care about it, do you need some sort of background process that occasionally does a full... Ch- so rather than just keeping up with the webhooks, say you drop one webhook event at some point, and granted, most of these platforms will have retries and things like that, but still, maybe something sneaks through and you lose that data do you have some background process that once a week tries to check and say like, hey, is our version of reality the same as their version of reality? It sounds like a losing battle, frankly. And so I'm questioning, you know, where do you draw that line and what do you need to have in the app versus not? Yeah, I'm with you. It is a tough spot to be in because my first instinct is to push it off as long as possible in terms of treat the other source, whoever has all of that data, treat that as the one source of truth and then respect that for as long as possible until you get to the point that you have so many features or reporting or just tooling that then you need to give users access to that data. And then it becomes too complex or too time consuming to always have to go and fetch that data. So then you start to think about, okay, do we have to duplicate and bring this locally? Joe Ferris, our CTO at ThoughtBot taught me a a new phrase that I hadn't heard before, but I really like, and it's called eventual consistency that applies to the idea of when you are syncing that data, you're likely going to always be just a little bit off. And is that okay? And you'll eventually be consistent. It will eventually match. But in the meantime, you're always just going to be a little bit behind. 
And maybe that's fine. Maybe being just a little bit behind is good enough for people that need to see data or that are pulling reports. If that's not fine, then you're going to have to really invest a lot more time to make sure that you are syncing data constantly and that you're not dropping anything or just always go to that one source of truth, which would be my preferred method if that's an option. Yeah, I think I'm of a similar mind. But again, there there are certain things that sort of push at the edges. Say you have large analytics sort of queries that are running. And to fetch the data from Stripe, like you need to go through a paginated API to get all that data in. Comparing that with a database query that may still actually take a while to run because it's this giant query that's joining across a bunch of tables and trying to understand sort of historical summaries of a user journey. Even if you had all the data, that would be a query that takes a while to run. And now if you need to do it through a paginated API, that's almost intractable in some cases. Similarly, from a performance perspective, if you are trying to show data that lives, say, in Stripe or another external system, if in the process of responding to a web request to your application, you have to make a separate or maybe even multiple web requests out to other APIs to then stitch the data together, I wonder what does that do to your performance and is that tolerable? And so again, it's sort of trade-offs all around. And as always, it depends, but sort of an interesting question in my mind. Yeah, those are great points. In regards, if we are going down the path, if we're going to sync data, we're like, okay, as you mentioned, we have a lot of data that's we'll continue to use Stripe as an example. And we're going to do a lot of analytics or reporting around this. And it is too time consuming for us to always have to go to Stripe and fetch it. Even if we are putting some of the reports in like a background job or something that can be processed and then someone can retrieve later. So when you are syncing that data, one thing that comes to mind that I've struggled with teams in the past is trying to update existing data versus just respectfully trying to either clobber everything that's there. So then that way you're always respecting that source of truth to say, hey, whatever you have is right. And we want to replace what we have versus I've seen some teams try to optimize and say, well, we don't want to clobber everything. We just want to try to find the next set of records that we need to pull in for efficiency reasons, which I understand, but that that gets hard. And when it does get out of sync, if something is wrong where some record was updated, but you're only fetching new and you didn't know to update an existing record, that's really hard to troubleshoot, which I may be coming at a slightly more negative perspective because I have had a heck of a bug this week that was related to this exact topic, (laughs) but we can dive into that shortly. Well, I'm very interested to hear about that. Briefly, before we move on, you started to say something that sort of caught my mind there around Do we just clobber the data and replace it, or do we sort of keep any historical references? And this is a separate but I think related problem of thinking about data as it changes over time. And so like, say we had one Stripe plan that was named like product one, and then over time we realize, oh, we don't want to call it product, we want to call it offering one. And so you change the name. But at the point that a user purchased it, for them it was product one. And so you have this sort of data having a historical value to it. And so if you're rendering an invoice on demand, referencing back when someone purchased this product, they purchased product one, but now it would be rendered as offering one. And so that idea of data and its sort of existence over time, I've not really pushed on this, but I'm really intrigued by technologies like Datomic is one of them, which is a database that basically records, as far as I understand it, every version of a record in the system. It's essentially immutable data in your database. And so if you're updating a value, you're actually creating a new entry that is now the valid version of it, but you have the whole historical backlog of things. 
which seems like it has some really interesting properties. But also there was a Postgres project that I saw recently that added similar things in Postgres. So at a row level, you can say this is valid from this state to this state. And so the current thing would have a starting date when it became valid, but no end date. But other things, historical values for that record would have a start and an end date to say like, this is where this piece of data was true. And then you can ask more sort of time-based queries of the database super intrigued by the ideas can't imagine what it does to performance and to other things but sort of a related idea that uh sort of in the back of my mind never really explored it but yeah it's intriguing but yeah i don't have any uh, more pointed things on that other than those are sort of areas of interest and potential future research so if i ever get around to that i'll certainly share more and now a quick break to hear from today's sponsor scout apm Scout APM is leading-edge application performance monitoring designed to help developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. With a developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, you can quickly pinpoint and resolve performance abnormalities, like N plus 1 queries, slow database queries, and memory bloat. Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails let you rest easy knowing Scout's on watch and resolving performance issues before your customers ever see them. Give Scout a try today with a free 14-day trial by visiting and experience firsthand why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. And as an added bonus for Bike Shed listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash bikeshed. That's scoutapm.com slash all one word B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. Thanks again to Scout for sponsoring today's episode of the Bike Shed. But yeah, pivoting back, I'm super interested to hear about this bug that you ran into this week. Yeah, it was a heck of a bug. There were actually two very interesting bugs, but we'll start with this one because it just fits so nicely with the theme that you've already mentioned around having a source of truth. So for this particular bug, we have a person and then we have their reservation, say like a restaurant. And in this case, in the application, we were running into an interesting situation where for a restaurant, you can see all the people that have a reservation for your restaurant. But suddenly those individuals that we knew we had a reservation for weren't on the list. They were just missing. And so we're trying to figure out where are these people going and looking through the data. They do have a reservation on the persons or people table, hover rails, pluralizes that table name. And we are syncing data. It's in a callback. So anytime a reservation gets saved, then the information on that reservation is then getting synced over to the person record. So the person record, we could check to say, hey, what restaurant are you going to? Or what restaurant do you have access to? What time is your reservation? So there's some interesting assumptions there that I won't quite dig into around the fact that this person now has just that one reservation but that is currently how the application is set up. And due to that side effect, so we are essentially associating that reservation with a person every time that their reservation gets saved. We also have another side effect that's happening or another callback where we will disassociate that reservation with a person. And that was the really interesting bug that we found because as you are creating a reservation, we put it in this hold status for you. Well, we also have a background job that's then going to go and look for all those reservations that were put on a hold status and essentially cancel them out because you only get 15 minutes to complete your reservation. And then we free it up for somebody else to book. So we have a background job that's running, looking for these hold reservations. So we were running into a situation where a person would go to one restaurant, they would start booking the reservation and they say, okay, never mind. I don't want to go there. I want to go somewhere else. 
And then we are associating that person with their new reservation. So this person now has two reservation records. The background job that's running is going to see the one that's on hold. And there's also the reservation that has been confirmed. And it's going to cancel that reservation that's on hold to free it up for other people. But that side effect is then going to clear out all the reservation fields on the person table. So our person had a valid reservation, but now as we were trying to show all the people that are supposed to show up at a restaurant, we no longer have that information on the person. So they were just, they were missing essentially. And it was a very tricky bug. I hope I've done a decent job of explaining it, but it was a very tricky bug to deduce why we were clearing out these fields and when it was happening. And then considering how we're going to fix it, because there's a couple of ways that we could attack this, but I won't dive into quite those details. It was more along the idea of trying to propagate data from one model over to the other and then have it in both places just feels like it was a bad idea. I, I, I don't know why it was done. So I don't have that full context. Maybe it was done for performance reasons. I'm really not sure. But we are very interested in trying to have one source of truth instead of trying to duplicate this reservation data across over to then the person record as well. So I am all in favor of removing callbacks, reducing side effects, and not propagating or syncing data over to other models. <laughs> All right, you've very quickly answered all of my questions then, which were, I, I was basically going to ask, do you feel like in this case, those are warranted because each of those stand out to me as sort of like, oh, that's interesting. Why are we doing that? But it sounds like you are not in favor of them. But now you need to make a system that is currently running, continue to run. And large architectural changes like that are probably tricky to pull off. Right. So that is one other interesting bit that I think is worth sharing because it was one of those moments of where we'd really like to get rid of those side effects. And we'd also really like to be able to reference just a reservation. So that was the first approach is we're like, okay, let's stop using these columns on person to look at their reservation details. And instead, let's just go look at their reservation record. That feels really reliable. The problem with the application, there's not a ton of test coverage. So then it's very easy to break dependencies on these columns that we're not aware of. So we initially tried to do the the grander fix of ignoring some of these columns and then get to the point that then we could remove these side effects, but then realize that we're not quite there. We don't have enough test coverage. This is a much larger change. So we ended up having to do a shorter fix, which is where we reassociated all the persons with their reservation. So that way they would surface. And we are guarding against disassociating a person from their reservation. If we are canceling, like if the reservation information doesn't match what's on the person, then don't remove it. because it probably matches a valid reservation. There's a lot of context here that I'm not sharing because I'm trying to keep it simple. (laughs) How is this feeling? Uh, I think you're doing a great job. It is incredibly difficult to talk about code on the radio. And I feel like I'm hitting the high points of it, which are, you know, there are these standout things that are like, oh, that's why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? But also, you know, we always lose the context in these sort of things. I'm intrigued the aspect where there's the background job that like 15 minutes later tries to go through and sweep out. And that's related to the business requirement of when you start making a reservation, you have 15 minutes to complete it. That idea is interesting to me. And I'm trying to think through whether that would be the approach that I would take or whether I might think of something different. And I think this also loops back to in previous episodes, you were talking about the lock model that exists for these reservations and some complexity around that. And so I'm not going to try to think through on the radio how I would implement that. But it is an interesting question to me, like, how would I model that business requirement? And what's the cleanest, most sort of correct and robust implementation? It's not obvious to me that this one isn't that. 
but I could definitely see different ways to approach this. And I'm sort of intrigued by that question. It'll probably bother me for like a week now. And I'll wake up in the middle of the night one night and be like, oh, I could go like this. And it'll be complete nonsense. You ever have that where you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, I have a brilliant idea. And maybe you even write it down. You wake up the next morning. You're like, cats and dogs, but with wings. What does that mean? What, <laughs> what were you thinking? So that's probably what I'll do here. I have had that, although this week was more like stress dreams around mm. where are these where are these people? Why aren't they showing up for the restaurants? <laughs> these poor and people, more, they just want to get dinner. <laughs> where are they in the system? They have reservations, but yet they're not surfacing. And I am also intrigued that, yeah, if you get to a different approach, because I think the job that cleans up all the appointments that were in a health status, that feels fine to me. That feels good. It's more the fact that when we are then deleting that held reservation since they didn't complete the process, that then we have that side effect of where we're like, hey, also go to that person record and clear out all reservation information. That's the part that I don't like and would like to remove from the system. It comes back to those like unknown side effects or those dangerous side effects. So the job does work for me. I'm not sure what other approach I would also take. I think the job is probably what I would have reached for, but avoiding those dangerous side effects. Yep. Side effects and lack of test coverage can make for an application that is terrifying to make changes to. And so I, I wonder, are you attempting to add more test coverage now to try and like get out in front of this problem for future architectural considerations? I think the majority of my PRs has been adding test coverage. It has been very small changes that are fixing bugs, very large commit messages, and adding lots of test coverage has been most of my work. Being the hero you want to see in the world. <laughs> there is an interesting thing with this application and often with other applications we work with, but especially this one in terms of like, how do we rehabilitate an application that is receiving a lot of traffic? And all the different levers and things that we can pull that if we want to make the app more stable, do we need to focus on just issues? But how do we still keep up with feature development? How do we add test coverage? All of those bits are very interesting to me. How do we refactor if there's a lot of complex domain knowledge and it takes a long time to understand what is happening before we can even begin to refactor it? Do we carve out new spaces for new models so that way when we do add to the system, we have this space that we feel confident about that's tested? So that's been a, a conversation that I've really enjoyed. I, I love that summary that you're giving there, because to me, that feels like sort of the bigger game that we are constantly playing of how do we take applications and build them in a way that is sustainable and you know we can make changes to over time. And you're describing it from the point of view of we're coming into an application that for various reasons has more complexity, more side effects, lower test coverage, etc. And it's harder to change. But I also I try as hard as possible to take the learnings from those from those hard times and apply them at the beginning of projects. And everyone's like, yeah, we'll just go really fast and we'll do these things. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on, everybody. I've been to the other side of this adventure and it's not a happy place. Let's write some tests. Let's avoid callbacks. Let's et cetera. It's all of these things that we talk about. But it is sort of it's a topic that is, I think, worth constantly thinking about and constantly trying to optimize around. And again, I think it's sort of the core game that we're playing here. Turns out DHH's video where he made a blog in 15 minutes is not representative of the entirety of software development. And much of it is spent later on in the lifecycle of a project when we need to add new stuff and change it and realize that, whoops, we went a little too fast there. 
But shifting gears just a bit, we do have a listener question this week. And as always, thank you so much to everyone who sends in listener questions. We do love getting them and feel free to keep sending them in. We've got forms and you can email them, hosts at bikeshed.fm or send them to us on Twitter. Really so many different ways to send us questions. But this one comes in from John and he writes, I saw the blurb for the new bike shed that y'all touch on secrets management, and that would be a great topic for a longer discussion. We still haven't found a solution for secrets management. And then he parentheses injecting secrets into apps. So he's clarifying what he means there that we're satisfied with. So we are all ears. Uh, secrets are encrypted by Ansible, but they still appear in plain text config files for Rails app. So I think he's just highlighting what their current state of the art is. And yeah, I think we've both probably explored a couple different versions. I'm interested. Uh, I don't have a great answer for this one, but I'm happy to share the few things. But yeah, what are your thoughts here, Steph? Yeah, I'm in a similar space. I can share the different approaches that I've seen and worked with. So we'll we'll just go wide. We'll include all of them. So there's the, the storing of the secrets in your app. Let's not do that one. Let's not have them as plain text in our GitHub repo. <laughs> and then for some of the other more reasonable approaches that I've worked with are storing secrets in Heroku. So in storing them as environment variables. So then that way the application has access to them, but they're not stored in the GitHub repo. But then you also do have very easy access to them to then view them and change them. When values are stored in Heroku, I I'd actually don't know if they're encrypted. Do you happen to know? Oh, uh, good question. I would strongly assume that they are encrypted at rest in whatever persistent storage that Heroku is managing there. Yeah, I would, I would very much hope for that. But as far as I understand it, once they're injected into the environment for a running process, then they're just plain text in the environment. Yeah, I don't think there's an easy way to do that without every application having to sort of opt into it and have more complexity and overhead. So I think the idea is that the environment is trusted and ideally Heroku is storing them in an encrypted way at rest. Okay, cool. And then one of the other approaches that I've seen used is using Git secret. So one of the applications that I worked with, the secrets are stored in the repo alongside with the code, but then they are encrypted using Git secret, which is a bash tool that's then used to store that private data and uses GPG to then encrypt all of the information. That one was interesting to me when I saw it because it is nice that it's encrypted. It is associated with the repo. The downside is then when you do want to make adjustments to it, then you have a new deploy because then you need to deploy that change that you have made. Also encrypting it, not encrypting it. It's not a time consuming step, but it is an extra step. So I do like the simplicity that Heroku offers, where if I'm storing my secrets in an environment variable, that makes it very easy to change. But then the Git secret does have the nicety of that it is encrypted and then it's stored alongside of your code. Those are the three things that have come to mind. I think all the approaches that I've worked with in managing secrets usually goes back to the way that Heroku manages it, where we're using environment variables to then store those values. There's also Rails secrets, which is a big prominent feature, but it's one that I honestly haven't worked with. Have you? I also have not worked with it, uh, and I don't really know why. It seems fine. I guess there is the complexity of people have that value, and the values... So like if you have the repo pulled down, you now have access to those secrets. And in contrast to, say, we use the Heroku environment as a way to manage it, if you take away someone's access to the Heroku project, then they no longer can pull down those secrets. In theory, they could have in the past, and they could totally have access to the whole thing. But for any future moment in time, they lose access if you cut off their access to the project. The Rails secrets, as far as I understand it, like you end up having to give them the key to decrypt them, and then they have that, and they keep that by virtue of still having the repository. So that is something that gives me a slight bit of pause. Likewise, I think the way it's coupled to environments is somewhat interesting. I've really found a lot of value in being able to sort of swap out values 
via the environment and have the application just restart in place rather than having to do a code change or like there's the ability to do different environments. But often the way that we build staging applications now is to actually make them as production-like as possible. So I'm not even sure, how do I say this is production, but not quite. And environment variables actually end up being a really great way to do that because you're ending up swapping out like, oh, on staging, even though staging thinks it's production, it's actually pointing at the Stripe sandbox because of this configured environment variable and the associated keys. So I, I think those things give me enough pause around Rails secrets. Um, but similarly, I'm surprised that I've not even worked on a project that has it. It's interesting to me. But yeah, to round out the other versions that I have seen, AWS, as part of its absolute pantheon of services that it offers, has a secret management tool. And I have worked with that. Uh, in that case, you end up with a, I think I'm remembering this correctly, there was a little CLI, and I was able to pull down the secrets that were necessary for my development. And you can sort of mention different environments. And then as part of the deploy scripts, the DevOps team there was doing the necessary dance with AWS to pull in the relevant configurations. And that has a nicety because it's sort of centralized and allows for configuration management and those sort of things and uses IAM roles, which is another feature of AWS. I've never really understood AWS in a deep way. It's a, it's a complicated space, but you get that sort of deep control and configuration via all of that. It's just, it's a lot to manage in my mind. But that's that's another tool. Actually, just this past week, I believe one password announced that they are introducing a new secrets management tool, which is really interesting because that's that's a product that has a deep focus on user experience and having a pleasant time, but also takes security seriously. So I'm very interested to see how that shakes out and what sort of the community response is to that, because I, I could see them doing a really great job and that becomes an interesting alternative actually one last tool to mention as part of that conversation when one password came out the main other tool that people seem to be referencing was hashicorp vault which is part of the hashicorp platform and that is a tool that provides configuration management of secrets and ways to access that and so it sounds like maybe a slightly better form of or a slightly more like friendly form of what the aws secret management tool is but i'll be honest i haven't actually worked with it it was just the tool that many people were referencing uh, and so that's an interesting another choice there. Yeah, I'm interested in one password's introduction of managing secrets. I'd love to look further into that. That's something that is new to me. And circling back to John's question, there's a particular part that I'd like to dive in a little further where we talk about they still appear in plain text config files for the Rails apps and just talk through. I'm not sure if the pain that's being felt here is the management of the secrets or if it's the concern that they are still plain text config files that's available to the Rails app. And then it's a question, well, if someone gets access to our server, they can now see all of our secrets in plain text. And it's, well, if they already got access to your server, maybe you have bigger problems. I don't know if that is the problem to be worried about. I mean, that is, of course, a problem to be worried about. But if they've already gotten that far, I don't know how big of an issue that is once someone has reached that stage. And then you do need to rotate everything. So then maybe that's also the other consideration, the management uh, rotation of keys, which I believe Heroku does have a feature for that called secure key that you can add that will help you automate rotating of your keys. Yeah, so I'm just I'm a little bit intrigued to understand more of the context in terms of how John's looking to improve their secret management process if it's around the security concern or if it's more around the management side. It's a good point. That was a, a subtle piece of what he referenced there. And fundamentally, the idea of having the credentials in a file that I presume Ansible is injecting into the container that's being built or whatever actual technologies are at play. But what we're saying is there's a file that contains all these secrets that is adjacent to the model files and the other things that Rails is looking at. I feel reasonably safe with that because 
Rails is not just going to serve an arbitrary file. Like if it's in the public directory, that would be very bad. We certainly don't want that because then anyone could just request secrets.txt and have all the secrets. There are directory traversal attacks. I know that that's a vulnerability that sometimes comes up if you're allowing people to provide a file name. And then, you know, if dot dot slash is allowed in that file name, then people in theory could gain access to files that are on the server. So there's maybe the environment is just inherently a slightly safer place because the idea of reading from the environment is a very specialized thing that requires more privileged access and reading from a file ends up being a, a lower level thing that maybe is easier to take advantage of, or at least that it feels like maybe it's more of a security vector there. But similarly, I haven't worked with it much, so I haven't thought about it deeply. But it is an interesting part of the question. On a, on a totally different note, but this just came to mind for me. I was pairing with Mike Burns, uh, another thought botter earlier this week. And you know, you do that whole dance of you share your screen and you're like, can you see my screen? And they say yes, and you move on. So I said the same thing to Mike Burns. I was like, can you see my screen? And he's like, yep, I can see all of your secrets. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> He made my heart skip a beat, but it's now like my favorite way to confirm with someone <laughs> for when someone shares their screen and says, can you see my screen? Say, yep, I see all of your all of your secrets. Can you see my secrets? Yeah. But with that, uh, I think we've provided a tour, at least of some of the options out there and maybe some of the thinking. Uh, again, I don't think we have a great answer here, but there are a lot of tools and, and ideally actually some new ones coming onto the scene. So uh, yeah, hopefully that helped out, John. And again, thank you to John for sending in that question. And uh, please, everyone else, send us lots of questions. We like answering them. But with that, should we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by the one, the only, the amazing Tom Obarski. We love you, Tom. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it helps other people find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email us at hosts at bike shed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to the bike shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.